Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, my guest is Amy Sharonis, founding partner of The Scratch Collective. Amy co-founded The Scratch Collective in 2020 to bring big brand and agency thinking and expertise to the world of startups and innovators. She and her business partner, Melissa Pins, are building a collective of specialized, on-call talent who want to work together and help good people win. Prior to scratching that itch, Amy was U.S. Chief Integration Officer at PR firm MSL, where she led high-performing teams for clients such as Allstate, Feeding America, KitchenAid, and P&G. Prior to MSL, she spent 10 years building and leading the global communications function at Leo Burnett, one of the world's most storied and celebrated ad agencies. Amy is one of my favorite people. She and I have had the experience to work together closely through a nonprofit here in Chicago. In this conversation, we get into how big companies think about their marketing and branding and how smaller companies can use those lessons to make an impact of their own. We talk about the principles of authentic communication and how to create messages that resonate. There is a ton in here. Amy is a total expert at what she does in the world of marketing and branding and reputation. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Amy Sharonis. And we are live with Amy Sharonis. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks, O'Brien. I'm super excited to join you today. Thanks for the invitation. I am very excited about this one. One, because of your expertise, and two, because you've been a mentor to me through our involvement with the nonprofit Embark here in Chicago. You were the chair of the board while I was the chair of the auxiliary board. So we worked very closely together there and really always liked your perspective and, and advice in that position. So I'm interested now to get more into the professional side of this, into branding and advertising and PR, which is what you do for a day job. So first off, I thought we'd just dive in by like defining some terms, which I think would be helpful. So what is the difference between branding, advertising, and public relations? A great question to start off with. Three things I'd love to talk about. So branding, I think is most easy if you think about the name of a company or an offering, the visual identity. It's really how like a, a person, a company, or a product shows up in the world. You know, you think about the power behind the Nike brand. You don't even need to see Nike. That's sort of the, the one that always gets pointed to in academia about you know the power of a brand, where advertising is really the paid message that pushes a brand, pushes a product, a service, a candidate, a movement, anything. Um, and that used to be more radio advertising, print, billboard, but now, you know, so much of the advertising dollars and the advertising prowess is obviously showing up on our phones and in digital and in our ears and everywhere. Um, and then PR, how I've spent my career, is really the earned media space. So uh, advertising is paid and public relations, we like to say, is earned. And that's expanded way beyond, you know, talking to journalists and trying to sway them, but any third party endorsement. So we do a lot of work in the public relations space with influencers. I do a lot of work on executives, thought leadership, um, employee communications, investor relations, all of that. And all of that's really having a moment right now because of what's happening in the world. So it's a great place to be. It's a great time to be in the world of PR. What do you mean by when you say earned media? Could you define that a little bit more? Yeah, earned media is working with the press, bloggers, influencers, to not pay them, but to earn a story or earn a mention or earn their endorsement of your product. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's, I guess I didn't realize that none of it was unpaid or that all of it was unpaid. 
Well, there is influencers we certainly pay and there is there is money being exchanged in all kinds of different ways. But in the truest form, PR has been earning that third party endorsement and advertising is paying and controlling the message. So they work very well, uh, hand in hand, earned media and advertising and other marketing um, disciplines. But there is that there is that sort of difference that is becoming more and more blurred. So you've had a, most of your career spent with larger companies, helping them think through this. How do larger companies think about these terms when it comes to their brand? Like, what do those conversations look like? What are they paying attention to? What's the conversation behind closed doors look like? I think the the biggest thing that people probably don't know is how much work goes on behind those closed doors to get to a to get to one PR push or to get to one commercial or other piece of content. The amount of data that we swim in, the smart humans that we have assembled who together the insights to be able to connect with you as a consumer, a lot of work and thinking data, money, um, and human partnership and collaboration goes into those big ideas that can, that can be very quick. And that, that's what kept me in the agency business for so long. I worked at ad agencies and PR agencies. And that power of um, different brains and different approaches to understanding humanity and how to get them to connect to an idea or a product is really fascinating and really fun to be in the midst of. And working at creative advertising agencies over the years, I kind of got addicted to the idea that these people have to do one of the hardest things that we ask people to do, and that's come up with an original idea, right? So when I was lucky enough to be a part of the Like a Girl campaign for P&G, somebody understood what was going on in the mind of the teen that they were trying to target with Tampax and married that with the cultural reality that we still were saying things like, she throws like a girl. Um, and we were able to put that piece of content out into the world and you know, get conversations to happen, got girls softball teams funded, um, you know, a lot of real reaction out in the real world um, happened because that, that insight was seen. And then we put it out in the world in an intelligent way. So can you explain in a little more detail, like what that was, like, what was the final product that really connected with people? Yeah, there was a beautiful film done in partnership with the, the Leo Burnett and MSL teams that I worked with. And a amazing documentary producer and uh, they made a film and they interviewed girls about what does it mean when you say run like a girl throw like a girl um, and the young girls and I, I, you know it's a it's a well-known piece of film um, you know the young girls didn't know that there was any difference that they were supposed to run or, or throw any differently than the boys but as they get into the teen years they start to answer the question differently and then they they started running, you know, awkwardly and funny and not not strong. It, it was able to really connect with people in an emotional way. You thought of yourself or your daughter or your aunt or your mother. It was just done in a really poignant way. Uh, it was shared in social. It was really, you know, a beautiful example of what can happen when something lights up in social media and people take the message themselves. And then the following year, it did run on the Super Bowl um, which is, you know, the the Oscars of of the advertising world, and and everybody really talked about it and saw it. Uh, it won every award, but I and I got to see a lot of that and go to a lot of those award shows. But I think that the team most felt recognized because they changed a conversation. And now I would never say that to my daughters. Uh, my husband would never say that to our daughters. It created a cultural consciousness that didn't exist. Yeah, it, it is a beautiful piece, and I I remember watching it, and you watch the the younger girls and then the older girls come in and you're just like, Oh no. Oh, oh what have we done? Yeah. It exactly. was, uh, it really hits you. So that's the final product. And it, it had this great kind of cultural revolution. What was the initial conversation? Like, like what were they trying to solve for? How, how do you get started in that type of a conversation? Yeah. I was not in the room, but I, I know lots of people that were in the room, you know, the room where it happened how that came to be, but it really was smart strategists and people who understood the teen market, which is when you start using the Tampax product, that's who they're trying to, trying to, you know, convince. And they, you know, they, they study what's happening in culture and 
they they get into the psychographics of what it's like to be a teen girl. I can tell you, I live with two of them. It's not fun. And um, somebody brought the the idea of different phrases that change when you become a teenager. And some brilliant person, I think many take credit for it, came what came to the room with the line like a girl. And you know that sounds simple. It was a million steps to get there. And then from that step to getting the right script and the right director and casting the right kids and, you know, getting that message out in the world, that's another million steps. But these agencies know what they're doing. These clients know what they want and they make big things happen and put them out in the world. And then as PR people, we get to be part of lighting that up and, and attaching that to culture. And when you see that happen, I've had a few of those big ones happen in my career. Uh, when you're in the midst of them, there's it's it's really exciting. So it sounds, if I'm going to put words sort of back into your mouth, it sounds like it starts with empathy and putting yourself in the other person's shoes. So this is our target client. These are the issues they're dealing with. And these are the types of ways that we want to help. Yeah, I think empathy is a very important and underrated piece of business overall. And it is certainly critical when you're trying to understand different audiences and how to connect with them. As I think about all the poor communications people who are sitting inside of candidates' rooms, you know, meeting rooms right now in this this final slog to election day November, um, certainly empathy is is highly discussed and and a, a very sought after emotion because that emotion tells your brain what to do. And so empathy is, is really, really critical as you're trying to sell something, um, as you're trying to motivate people. And I, I hear it talked about more, but I think that's, that's a bit of a new phenomenon that people really understand the power of empathy and try to act like that in business, but also in the business of trying to persuade others. So I have a question that's kind of wrestling around in my head, and I don't know that this is going to come out the smoothest, but it, it seems like you know, any industry can get a bad reputation as well as a good reputation. And I think when you think of advertising, branding, and PR, you can you can sometimes go to the negative spot of like, oh, it's spin, right? They're trying to spin themselves. They're trying to convince you to buy something. They're trying to, you know, manipulate you in some way. You know, whereas that commercial, the, the Like a Girl commercial, I mean, they were trying to get people to buy their product. They were trying to build their brand up, but they were also trying to create some real change. What's the difference between when that's done well and when it's done poorly? Like in my mind, the term that came up is almost like there's empathy and there's weaponized empathy. (laughs) Very smart. Yes, there is a difference. And I would say the main difference, the, the, the the reason it works is when it's authentic. So you've seen a lot of powerful messages, but then they're attached to something that doesn't make any sense. But like, it was a great idea and they got somebody to pay for it. If you think about like a girl, you know, that was all about their target and you have to start using their product when you become a teenager and all of this is happening to you. And so they had a right, I believe, to have that conversation. Someone else could have come up with the fact that that line shouldn't exist and they could have made a beautiful film and they could have put it out in the world and said, brought to you by Miller Lite, that would have made no sense. And I don't think the public would have embraced it the way that they did. So everything that is connecting with people today, even and more so today and probably more so tomorrow, has to be baked with two things, and that's authenticity and transparency. And in that reality, the the PR game has changed because people can go on the internet and find that you've actually showed up differently in the world. I mean, nothing, they can't hide from anything. And so it feels better to be in the PR business than it ever has because we really work with authenticity and transparency on behalf of our clients because consumers will call BS if you don't. So I think there's less opportunity to do weaponized. Uh, it certainly exists. Again, if you want to think about um, political campaigns as the ultimate PR branding exercise, it's certainly happening, but it's a, it's a lot harder to get away with. And, you know, consumers get to ultimately decide with how they spend their money. Yeah. Okay. That, that's interesting. And, and it definitely seems to be most weaponized in political campaigns, kind of on on both sides of the aisle, because you really are trying to galvanize people in your direction. And often it's based on, maybe it's only weaponized if it's based on negative 
emotions versus positive emotions. Right. But somebody's negative emotion is the other side's positive. So they're all, they're all kind of wrapped up together. You know, another one in this vein that talking about like, it has to be tied to what is authentic to you. Just this week, we saw Patagonia come out with their line of clothes or tag their line of clothes that have the tag, vote the assholes out. A lot of press, a lot of the marketing press that I read wrote about it and talked about it. And I think other brands would have been vilified in this incredibly caustic environment. But the reality is that whatever you think of that, Patagonia can authentically show up with that because of what they've done in the climate space and in the sustainability space and as an activist brand before. So I'm sure there are large swaths of people who don't think that they should do that or don't think that the word assholes should be printed on clothing. But what a powerful way to use your brand to exercise a message that your, your, your company fundamentally, authentically, and transparently stands behind and get some smart strategic press for it at this time in our country. You know, I love to then follow what do they report from, you know, in, in their investor call in nine months about how they did this quarter um, based on that. How does that lead to sales? It certainly leads for a large part of the population that they want to sell to. It leads to more brand affinity, and that's really important too. So how do you think, or, or well, I will go with how you think. I was going to ask you how the industry thinks, but we'll just go, we'll, I won't give you that much responsibility. <laughs> Thank you. There's, there's the element of short-term gains and long-term gains and, and long-term value, maybe at the expense of short-term gains. And something like that, could potentially hurt them in the short term, but is adding and compounding to what their brand is to sort of reinforce who they are for the long term. How do you think about short-term gains versus long-term gains when you're putting a brand together? Well, overall, a brand is a long-term play and investments in visual identity, the the look, the feel, how you show up experiential, those are all long-term plays because It's building to, yes, you might buy me today, but that I can ensure that you're going to buy me for the long haul. If you think about the toothpaste you used this morning is likely the same brand that your parents had in the house when you arrived home, right? That's probably true. And As far as uh, I know or can remember, that's true for me. Those kinds of things. I grew up with Crest. The neighbors across the street were Colgate. I remember having a funny conversation with them about it in my youth. I, I think that the the people, brands that, that every brand wants to endure, most companies don't want to be here for two years. So you are investing in the long term. But there are many, there are many campaigns and many things that we do because of the 2020 imperatives, because of the sales goals we need to meet, because of we have to get this product introduced, because this is a uh, an issue we're having with a, a supplier, with a partner, et cetera. So there are lots of things that happen because in the fourth quarter, we have to do X. And I think smart companies balance the short term with the long term and investing in branding, investing in public relations and thought leadership and the things that define you as a company, not just how much the toothpaste cost um, are really important. But the big smart marketers, those who succeed, are able to invest and balance both. Do you find that those two things compete often or is that usually it's just not that often a problem that you can walk those two lines pretty evenly. Yeah, I think that's a constant battle, right? And there's more and more pressure for the, you know, sales by the month, sales by the week. We can see what's happening in e-commerce every day. Um, So with all of the additional data points and with incredible urgency as we sit here in a pan session or whatever we want to call it, you know, certainly there are a lot of short-term pressures that I don't think we felt as much a couple decades ago, but there's also a sophistication that comes with all of the data and the insights and the knowledge we have now that allows us to also show the long-term gains and the long-term importance of, of investing in the brand. Do you see any commonalities between what companies are doing 
that are navigating this well and what companies are doing that are not maybe navigating this situation well? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a bias because I, I do a lot of work and with executives and founders. I think so much is about leadership and what starts from a leadership perspective. And, you know, those who have a leader who sets a clear agenda and creates a clear and compelling culture for people to stay and do their best work often have the best results. The companies that struggle, I think, well, sometimes they have great leaders. It's not that that's the, that's the only thing that matters, but the companies that struggle, you know, you can often look back to, you know, a strife between the CEO and the board, um, strife within this, within the C-suite, misalignment of values and priorities throughout leadership. So, you know, people do their best work when they are, when they understand what, what, where they're running and who's in charge of deciding that that's where they're running to. And then they have a real connection to the culture and believe in where we're all running together. And, you know, I've worked in places as you have, where you've really felt that. And it's amazing when everything's lined up and you're all running together and you get to have that connectivity and accomplishment as a team. And then we've all worked places where some of those things are off and it just doesn't feel like you can do your best work and it's not the best time of your career. And so there's a ton of factors, but certainly leadership for me is the, the most important and compelling. How does that translate to brand and PR work or, or how a company shows up in the market? So the best leaders also really understand the power of communications and spend time and energy and a portion of their being conveying what they believe in, what the company believes in, why this is a winning proposition, what it means to come and contribute. I, I believe that, you know, that, that it, it all sort of starts with that. You may have just answered one of the questions that I had, but you, you've spent a lot of your time with big companies. We've talked a little bit about some big, you know, P&G and their big campaigns. There was a lot of money that they could put at getting that like a girl campaign put together. But there are a lot of companies out there, whether it's a startup or a middle market company that doesn't really have that capital, that budget, but they still, you know, their brand is just as important. How they market themselves, how they show up in the world is just as important to their long-term success. Where do they start? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, I've pivoted in the last six weeks and I'm now running a collective that is all about serving startups. And so I'm, I'm daily thinking about that and and showing up and helping founders to think through that. So I think brand is very important. And while the budget for the brand is certainly smaller from the start, companies need to invest in having clarity about their offering and and an understanding of how that shows up in the world so that is your visual identity that is your how you come in on linkedin how people experience you as a consumer all of that is sort of the experience around a company a brand and offering and that investing in that being very clear about the importance of that from the beginning uh, allows companies to build something from the start that people that can resonate with people um, that is differentiating, right? If you look at Lyft and Uber and the problems that each of them have had and the way that you perceive the exact same offering with, you know, two different uh, grouping of four letters, two different colors, the same drivers in the same city, pretty much the same app. Do you have a different view of Uber than you do of Lyft? And tell me why you think that one is any different than the other. Because of the way that the drivers talk about them. And so that is one of my favorite points to make. <laughs> People sometimes undervalue the importance of employee engagement shareholder, stakeholder, however you want to call it, engagement. Architecting the way that those Lyft drivers show up differently than those Uber drivers is maybe the most important market mover for the category that will forever define what happened when the internet came and how everything was democratized in America, right? And that, that if they had just 
tried to advertise their way into that, you, there's absolutely no difference between them. But when you authentically have a different experience, that's what you remember. That's why you have a different viewpoint of those completely identical brands in every other way. Is that similar to like the PC and, or, or Microsoft and Apple where the artist community, anyone who was doing anything artistic sort of felt like they were being neglected and that's, that's what built, that's what Apple built their foundation of their computers on and then was able to kind of come in and take over the rest of it because they had such a positive experience within that community. Yeah, they, they became the place for creatives and thinkers and, and a different kind of person than Microsoft. But I would also say that there are, the differences are greater between Microsoft and Apple than they are even between Lyft and Uber. Sure. But they have certainly, Apple will be studied and, and um, talked about forever as it pertains to brand because of the way, I mean, they are, they, they're the gold standard of how you show up and how people experience you. But again, in a very different way that you you have a personal experience when you meet a Lyft driver and you tell them that, oh, I just found out today my wife is pregnant or whatever, right? That is such a, they, they, they have a, a personal service. And so, you know, those, those California companies took very different paths to have what is the same outcome in a way, which is that we understand their brand, we understand what they stand for, and we will buy, 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 consume, consume, consume what they make and continue to jack their stock prices up because of the way that they created a customer experience and they understand brand and, you know, human connectivity. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So when you said, you know, they created a customer experience, but really they've created an employee experience and that employee experience then translates into the customer experience. You're so absolutely I, right. I think you see a lot of companies really focused on the customer experience while neglecting the employee experience. And they just expect that because we're paying you, you're going to go out and you're going to do your job, which is to deliver this customer experience that we're training you on. But if you're not authentically connected or authentically fulfilled and you don't enjoy it or enjoy the people you're working with and enjoy your leadership, all the training in the world is not going to have you deliver that positive experience. Absolutely. When we, when we lay out all the different audiences that a company needs to connect with, it always starts with the employees because if they don't believe your message and if they don't espouse it, if they're not your ambassadors, if they don't understand where you're headed, how on earth are people who don't show up to your Zoom or your office every day going to? So starting with employees and creating that experience and creating that stickiness is by far the, the first place to start. And that will that will serve you well, especially if you are obviously in the service business. So how many leaders when you first show up in their office, buy into that leadership first, employee first mentality versus how many do you maybe have to coach to get there? Most CEOs that I've had the opportunity to work with are in those jobs because they fundamentally already understand the importance of communications. There are, of course, going to be CEOs or leaders that it's, it's not their pr primary focus, right? At the end of the day, the CEO has to deliver shareholder value. But I have been very fortunate to be around a lot of leaders that are fundamentally, authentically in those jobs because people want to follow them and people want to follow people who give them a place to go, have empathy, like we talked about before, and can can bring them along on a journey. We spend a lot of our lot of our time uh, as adults working, and if you can, you know, be lucky enough to work in an environment where people care about you and your career uh, and what you'd like to do outside of work, I think that's really really powerful. And the leaders who do that get to lead, and they have an amazing following that drives that helps drive the business and the success. So it's always going to be the reality that, that some don't fundamentally want to talk about employee engagement or don't want to spend time on communications. But I think that's not a big piece of the pie today. So let's say we have listeners to this who are 
heads of HR or, or heads of any department where their CEO or the rest of their leadership team hasn't quite bought into that value of employee experience. How do you help guide them back onto the path or at least get them close to the path, starting to see that, that this thing has value and that somebody at least in the organization needs to be working on it? I think data and the competition are the two most compelling pieces to convince them to engage in employee engagement. So I think that employee surveys, regular employee surveys are super powerful. Leo Burnett, where I worked for a number of uh, 10 years, actually, and I just left, they do an amazing job of this. They, they work with a um, product called Tiny Pulse, if anyone's heard of it, and they survey employees every two weeks and get amazing feedback that allows them to to act quickly. So you can put a question in that is timely to what's happening and you don't wait, you know, you, you get that instant feedback and people know that their opinion is being taken seriously every two weeks. And then the CEO talks about it in the regular employee meetings. So I think having really regular data about what employees think and feel and what they're, and also seeing what they're saying in social is super important. And it's so easy today. Which is really just building a good business case, right? It's build the business case for employee engagement, show them the value that it's actually having on the business. Because it, it can feel like just a feel good, nice to have thing, but it really does. I mean, especially today and what we're seeing as as the world shifts more to transparency, like you talked about, we're seeing the value play out and we're seeing companies get burned and we're seeing the impact on their their financials. And we're seeing the companies who are doing it the right way, even if they're going out taking what would have been perceived a few years ago as a risk, you know, we're seeing the value of that when it's done authentically so that you can build the case. Absolutely. And I think the other piece of that that I mentioned is the competition and how do you get your CEO to react? Well, show him what the competition has in terms of employee engagement. You know, it's one of the first questions I always get asked is, well, what, what's the competition spending? often a hard number to to get but i think if you can start to understand what is happening at those competitors and how they're trying to engage employees that is really important to to motivate and activate so you talked before about good leaders being good communicators what goes into good communication what makes somebody a good communicator it all goes back to it being truthful and authentic. You can write a beautiful speech and give it to a leader, but if they're not their words and not their emotion, people can see through it. So I, I think that when you see a CEO deliver something that they created that is about their passion, that is in their voice, that is true to who they are and why they show up and do this job every day, that is the most, that is the most powerful piece. I would rather have a CEO get up four times a year and convey what he or she thinks in a really authentic way, able to cite employees that have done a good job, be able to cite all of the, you know, all of the comp company metrics and, and show their engagement and show how hard they're working and how much they care about it. I'd, I'd rather have fewer touch points, but have them be real than have weekly emails that you can tell were written by the communications department. People don't buy that anymore. The other thing that is so important is the power of social media to an internal audience. We have seen such a shift in the way that employees really take the value and the, the words that a, an executive puts out in LinkedIn or even you know, their own sort of more personal social channels, that really speaks to people. They believe that if they put it out there in the world, it carries so much more weight than that internal memo that was crafted just for that audience. So we do a lot of work using those kinds of platforms um, especially LinkedIn, to convey messages and to create that connection between employees and their leader because they'll believe it and because it it reinforces that I, I am following somebody who knows what they're doing, is an industry leader, has category expertise, cares about issues. That shift of the power of social media 
which is free, which every executive should be using in a strategic way, that shift has been really important. Um, And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have internal memos or we shouldn't have channels that are just reaching employees, but really using the power of social media and external comms and you know, press placements where the, the executive is talking to the Wall Street Journal, those are really meaningful to employees. So that makes me think of vulnerability. And while vulnerability has started to become more common in our vernacular, even in the business world, it's still something that people, at least I see people shying away from in a leadership position that, you know, they're uncomfortable sharing that level of personal sentiment. How do you think about the role of vulnerability in leadership and in communication? I think it is super powerful. And I'm so glad you're bringing up that word. It is so powerful when people open themselves to you. I I think, especially with what's happening in our world and how we're all showing up, you know, I'm taking a call and presenting and my son comes up and puts his arm around me and wants to be seen on the Zoom you know, that's happening to people at all levels. We're seeing inside people's living rooms. We're, you know, I'm doing meetings in my baseball cap with no makeup on. We're very vulnerable because of what's happened to us as a work culture. And I feel more connected to people and to some people in some ways than I did when I saw them in the office. I walked in the office. I went into my office They or they went into their office. You know, you'd, you'd have five minutes where now I'm looking you in the eye. You're seeing me in a one inch box, but you're seeing me the entirety of our conversation. You're seeing my dog. You're seeing my daughter. You're seeing my, the, the wall of the relatives behind me. And I think that vulnerability and that openness by people has helped connect us when we haven't felt very connected. So, and you're seeing lots of, CEOs and lots of leadership platforms where people are talking about that and what does it mean to be working from home and the fear that we have as a as a country right now. And so I, I think it's it's it was certainly gaining steam, right? But I feel since March 13th, my first day uh, work from home for Lord knows how long, that it's it's more and more acceptable and it's more and more powerful. I, I would also posit something that could be a little controversial, but that's never scared you, is that I also think with the rise of women leaders, vulnerability has a different place in business. Um, women, you know, I'm making huge generalizations here, so, uh, you know, we don't need to write letters to me, but women are very comfortable or ha- many women are very comfortable with their vulnerability. And so as I look at great female CEOs, I think they bring some of that to the table and makes it more acceptable and makes it perhaps more um, understood and and ultimately powerful. So I think that could be when they study this um, decades from now, I would think that that would be a part of the reality of this coming more into business culture. That makes me think of the saying, and I think you and I were talking about the other day, you know, people don't remember what you said. They remember how you, how you made them feel and story to a big part of storytelling and doing it well is the emotional piece of it, right? It's, it's drawing out some emotion. And what you just said made me think like when you're being vulnerable, when you're communicating in a vulnerable way, when I can see all of your relatives behind you and you tell me a little bit about that story, you know, like there's something in there I can connect with, right? Like we're, we're all, I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned and I've learned it through the work that you and I've done together with Embark is we have more commonalities than differences. When you really get down to the elements of who we are as people, which is why I'm doing this podcast. I mean, I think that there are core principles that exist across humanity. And if we can just figure out what those principles are, you can use them in a plethora of different ways. And I think about this like like vulner- when you're vulnerable in communication, people are connecting with you. You know, you think you're putting yourself out on an island and you're the only one who's ever felt this way, but everybody has felt that way in some capacity or can relate in some way. And that to me that's the where the value comes in and why that can be so powerful is because we all feel alone and we all feel exposed and then when you go out there and you're alone and exposed, everybody then suddenly rallies around you because they can all feel that way with you. Absolutely. And that's the, you know, that's the power of storytelling. And you do feel that that is more needed than ever before. 
So, you know, that's something that the brands, candidates, people, teams are going to really be leaning into, I think. And the leaders who can do that, espouse that, live their work world like that will benefit. And to your point about social media, we all have the ability to do it. We all have the ability to tell authentic stories. Absolutely. It's the only story I know is my authentic story. And when leaders don't use social to engage with people that way, you know, I listen, not everybody's I'm a, I'm a very open book and and not every leader is going to be an open book and you don't need to share every, you know, kid picture, et cetera. But there is real power in people seeing you, who you are being open allowing yourself that vulnerability that just allow makes people connect with you. And, you know, we're still a people magazine culture, right? We still like, we still like photos. We like people stories. We like the story of the hero. We want to see what our fellow man and woman does out there in the world. And we wanted it in 2019. We really need it in 2020 because we're kind of stuck in our own same story. And so the power of storytelling is going to be continue to grow as we deal with our new realities. And, you know, that to me as a parent and as a, a Chicagoan and all the different pieces of me, I think that that's so important to, to how I'm getting through this thing. And as a, as a person who loves and cares about marketing, the, the marketers and the brands that are able to facilitate that and lean into that will be the ones that survive this thing and, and come out stronger. So you said, I want to pull something out that you said there, because you said it very quick, but I think it's really important too, is that just because you're being vulnerable doesn't mean you don't set boundaries for yourself. And I listened to some of the stuff that Gary V puts out. And I mean, that guy is on every platform. He's putting out five messages a day, right? Some I know he can be polarizing. Some people really like what he's doing. Some people don't. But I, I remember hearing him say, like, look, all this content I put out, how much does anyone know about my family? Zero, because I don't talk about my family. My family's mine. That's a boundary I put up. I'll talk about all this other stuff all day long, more than anyone can deal with. You know, He's like putting out a fire hose worth of content about specific things, and he's being very vulnerable in specific ways, but he's also got his own stuff that he's, that he's not sharing. And so I think, I think people often think about vulnerability and being transparent as, and that can be uncomfortable because they feel like they have to be totally transparent in every aspect of their lives, that that's what that means. And it's not that extreme. It's just, you know, finding the things that you're relating to, you know, and if you're relating about your business to your employees, be vulnerable about your business to your employees, but you don't need to share everything else if you're uncomfortable doing it. No, absolutely. And when, when I do work with executives about their executive profile and their visibility and their social channels, you know, those are the conversations I have about like, how far do you want to go? What are the things about you that are not specific to the business or your quarterly earnings that where can we go? Can we talk? Is it your passion? Can we talk about the fact that you're a painter? That would open up a whole new side of you that people would never know about? Or do you want to keep that you're a painter private? Or, you know, what what are the what what about you being a coach for your kids team teaches you lessons that you bring into the boardroom? I just think always trying to find just that's what's that one thing about yourself that does is relevant to your work that will allow you to let people know you and let you in and make that connection. Yeah. I think one of the interesting experiments that we're all seeing in real time is as everybody does have a voice and goes on social media and starts to say their piece, you can, you can really see who's doing it authentically and who's not, you know, even if somebody is a soccer coach, if they're using the fact that they're a soccer coach to try to like, get you to feel a certain way, you're not going to feel a certain way. If you, if they're, but if they're authentically communicating it because it reminded them of something, you know, and they wanted to share that, then that lands. And we had a guy who is working for us. And we have a big meeting every May where all the partners come together and we all have to present our business plan for the coming year. And you get critiqued. You get critiqued on how you did last year, what your plan is, and whether you're actually going to do what you say you're going to do. It can be a little intense. But we had a guy who stood up and I was watching his presentation and I was like, I leaned over the guy next to me and I said, why do I not believe him? Because 
he's saying all the right things. And I put, I put it together that he was saying all the right things. He was just humble enough, but just confident enough. He was just self-deprecating enough and like just respectful enough to the rest of the group that he was selling his way through that presentation. But there was nothing about him. And I actually, I wound up calling him out on it in the meeting, which got a little tense, but that was the point of the meeting. And I said, you know, I said that to him and he said, well, what do you want me to tell you that I'm intimidated by this group of people that, you know, I'm a newer person and I don't have the performance and, you know, that makes me uncomfortable. I said, yes, yes, that's exactly what I want you to say. And that 60 seconds when he finally let the guard down, even though it was admitting that he was in a compromised position, landed so much better with the whole group. And it just like reinforced that position that like, if you're even saying the right thing with the wrong intent is still doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Because we're very intuitive as humans. We, we, we sniff it out. We see it. It's so, it's so obvious. And it's even obvious now. And as you say, in social media, you can even tell from the writing, from the way it's posted, from, you know, have a little extra space between the um, sentences because it shows that you actually typed it, right? (laughs) Sometimes a little human error tells us that we're human. But the other thing I thought about when you were talking is also the importance of being able to take feedback. And when you said he hit everything just right, my first thought is, oh, those are my favorite kind of people to work with because he probably sought and took feedback. And that is such a powerful piece of the equation as, as executives and, and others, when you're out there in social media or you're out there giving speeches to your employees, um, is that the people who can take feedback and ask for feedback get so much better every single day versus those who, you know, really never seek the feedback. They don't have to, they don't have to do performance review sessions because they're so senior, but one of my favorite CEOs I've ever worked with, he ended every one-on-one meeting with me asking, so how am I doing? What can I do better? And it just set a tone that I don't have it all figured out. And I value what you have to say about how I'm doing. And it made me ask him for feedback. And so I got much more out of our relationship because he didn't just tell me when he renewed the contract that he liked this and this, but along the way, he said, I think you could do more of this and I think you should do less of this. And so I've really tried to have that with clients and with people I'm working with as I'm building this collective to always say, what am I doing? What am I not seeing? Right? We see each other, we see ourselves in a certain way and others see differently. And I think always asking for and then being okay to act on that feedback creates such a great environment and it makes us all better. Did you actually see him then change one of the behaviors that you gave him feedback on? I did. And it was really he several things, but I had to call him out on some things that were kind of core to how he was. And I know others also gave him some similar feedback, you know, that helps. But I did see him really not just listen and nod, but try then in the next meeting to do a little bit more of this or a little bit less of this. You know, we don't fundamentally change as people very easily, but a lot of things in in that kind of coaching and that kind of feedback is tweaks. And those little tweaks that, that hitting it, like you said, he just hit it right the right way in between. Those tweaks can make all the difference and make the employees, for example, really listen to him harder because of the way that he is opening it up or using their names or, you know, starting with gratitudes, all of that. So, I, I have seen that and it's, that's really powerful. Well, and I would guess that that's why you had a positive experience with him asking for feedback, because I've also been around people who ask for feedback, who don't do anything with the feedback, but they just know that they should be asking for feedback. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I've done three sixties. I I'm a big proponent of feedback. And I'll also be the first one to tell you that when you get hit with a very accurate piece of feedback, it hurts very acutely and and it can be very very easy to let your emotion take over in that moment and ramp up a bunch of excuses about why that's not true or why what you're doing you know they don't understand or something like that and the reality is the more you can just sit with that feedback or at least what i found the more you can sit with that feedback and go okay they're giving me this feedback what about this is real something in here is real what about it is real what do i need to do about it that then allows you to go out and actually act on it and I've always found that that tough feedback are these, these same key themes that probably you heard about in your first job 
you go home, you ask your spouse, that's their exact same kind of feedback, right? Not, not how it showed up in the deck, but there are things that we just are wired to not be as good at or harder to deal with on this topic or whatever. When I, I, I did one of those big executive coaching things and I got all this kind of kinds of feedback and there were these themes and I came home and shared them with my husband and he was like, yeah, totally. That's who you are. <laughs> it's not like, yeah, I, I see all those things. It's not like you leave the house and you change. It's not like you, you know, the, the people that know you best, I'm sure your wife would say, absolutely, O'Brien, that is who you are. And so those things are hard to change, but if we are aware of them, then we can tweak them to benefit our, you know, the employees and our team members around us, but also how we show up in the rest of our life. Yeah. I, I just think it all goes back to our intent. I, I just, I work with a sales coach and we talk about how you can walk into a meeting and if your intent is to get them to buy something, it's a very different conversation than if you walk in with the intent of trying to help them in any way that you can. You could say all the same things, you can pitch all the same services, but it's just a very different conversation because all of your nonverbals come off differently. The tone comes off differently and, and it, people can feel that sincerity. And I think that's true. Giving and asking for feedback in your branding message, in your social communications. It's like, you got to think about like, okay, I'm going to put this message out. Like what's my intent with this message. And if the intent is really to be authentic, hit send, you know, hit enter, hit, hit publish. If it's some form of self-servingness, maybe think about it for a second. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that intent focus is is really important. I'm going to I'm going to use that. What is my intent and it being super clear on that and then your your point of like, yeah, the body language, all of it, it all comes through. That's how that's how we're wired. That's the, you know, one of the many oddities of human beings and um knowing that and showing up with that is it, that's that's really great. Yeah, I I still to this day before a a presentation or before a meeting with somebody, I just like I'll sit there for a second and go I don't need anything from this person. I'm just here to help. And I want to see, you know, I want to see them get to the best outcome. And now let's go in, let's have that conversation. And it like, I'm still there to sell our service, but it's like, it, it just feels much better. Yeah. It's clarity. Yeah. Yourself. Well, I know we're getting to the end of this here. I have a question that I've been asking everybody as kind of a wrap on this. What in your mind is the purpose of business? That is a great question. And if you shared it with me ahead of time, I missed it because it, I don't It was know. on the form I sent you. <laughs> I love that. Um, the intent of- well, Here you go. You, you haven't prepped. So we yeah, need the authentic no, no, answer no. now. I love it. Um, I, think <laughs> the in, I think the intent of business is to allow our society to move forward. I think as individual people, if you're in the business world, world, the intent is to give yourself meaning and purpose and a way to contribute. And I would say for me, the role of business has been to allow me to explore and to allow me to, to have identity and meaning beyond being beyond all the other roles. It's a, it's a very interesting question. It's, it's a good, it's a very good way to, uh, to sort of understand what's, what's your meaning in business. And I think I have to continue to think about that, but I know that it has created incredible meaning in my life. And I feel so fortunate for all of the, that, that I have been able to lean into the business world and how it has affected me and what I see. Yeah. Well, and I don't think there's any wrong answer to it. Uh, there's definitely not a right answer. I've gotten as many different answers as different people I've had on the show. And, and it seems like there's layers to that question too. You know, you can think about it from a lot of different angles or perspectives, but I'm just, I'm always curious on what's the whole point of this exercise. You know, why are we doing this in the first place? What's your so, Mine is, is a little layered too. I, I think the purpose, you know, the, you think about it like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like there's a purpose to provide income and financial security to individuals and to provide something of value out to the community. But I, I do more and more think that the purpose of business, like you said, is to, to kind of move things forward. I think I think it's to do good by all the parties. I think it's to create value for your customers while earning income for yourself, while 
employing other people to allow them to go out and live the lives that they want to live and achieve their goals and dreams. And so I think shareholder value is a part of that, but I also think that you have to think about shareholder value, employee value, and client customer value, and the businesses that are really killing it and really sustain are the ones that are doing all of those because that's then building more community. It's improving everybody's lives. It's allowing us all to go out and be happier, be healthier, be mentally healthier, all that kind of thing. Absolutely. Of course you had a good answer to that. I'm not surprised. I've asked this question like 25 times. (laughs) I love it. Well, before we go, you know, you have a new venture and we, we talked at the beginning about how you have been historically doing this for very large companies. Well, suddenly you're very accessible to smaller companies. And so I would hate for any smaller company listening to this to feel like you're this inaccessible expert. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and how you're bringing your expertise down to the smaller market, what that looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, after 25 years in big agency land, I broke off with a friend and trusted partner, Melissa Pins, and we started the Scratch Collective. And that is a collection of really smart, kind, good, experienced humans who can solve clients' needs. We're focused to start on the startup community um, or companies who want to act like startups. And we bring three things together, um, and that is brand strategy, communications, PR strategy, and then a go-to-market strategy. And by pulling those three pieces of the puzzle together, we're delivering what we're calling reputation design. And sort of in this time, startups especially, are they're so busy working on the tech and setting, setting up the, the business and propping it up that um, too many times, I think they sort of leave the, the storytelling about why they exist and their founder story and their connectivity to employees and, and stakeholders, they leave it to, to the side. And I think if it is more central to, to how they're operating every day, they will succeed, win, and grow faster. So that's, the, that's what we're bringing to startups. We've got six clients in our, as we wrap up week six um, and having more fun than I thought possible, just you know, really kind of coming in and understanding the dream of these founders, where they are in their go-to-market strategy and how really strategic communications can support what they're doing and get them to their goals faster. So it's not a big agency, it's not a big overhead, um, but we can come in really surgically, give them what they need, bring them the team that they need, and then, you know, get out or continue to help execute as they are evolving so quickly. So um, really excited about the startup community here. And we've got clients in, in other markets, but just feel, you know, a ton of love and support from um, our friends out in the business world and the way they've been able to make terrific connections and we're off to the races. It's great. A, cl- a client a week is a good trend. You keep right? that up. You're going to do very well. I love what you're doing with reputation design too. I just think that's such a great way to think about branding and communications because it is your reputation is really every touch point, right? A, a guy told me before head of H senior head of HR for Hyatt back in the day was telling me about how he thought about employee experience. And he was saying every interaction the employee has with the company either is positive or negative. And over time, they're going to go, you know, they're going to work through this scatter plot and they're either going to trend up or they're going to trend down. And that is going to either be the success of your organization or it's going to kill it. And so he was trying to design those positive experiences. And I think about the work that you're doing as helping think about all of those different experiences and how do you align them all so that you can get as many positive experiences in there as you can. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I'm glad I translated it well, cause you, you said it back perfectly. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what we're building and it's, and it's great to get to think through, um, all of these topics with you as I'm, as I'm building and growing this. And, uh, today was, today was great fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was wonderful and, and really appreciate your expertise and guidance. Anyone out there who is interested in building this stuff for their companies, definitely reach out to Amy. We'll put her, uh, contact info, um, or at least the company's contact info in the show notes. And Amy, just wish you the best on what you're doing. Really appreciate you and uh, and what you do. Yeah, you too. I'm going to head out uh, to my next meeting with intent. 
thanks to you and I uh, look forward to continuing to listen to your podcast. You're doing a, you're doing a great job. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.